0: Decarbonization of carbon net zero economies in Asia and beyond will depend on the capacity of sectors to adopt decarbonization solutions. In this podcast, Prof. Frank Yatso, Prof. Lulin Hughes, and Dr. Tom Longden from the Australian National University Crawford School of Public Policy discuss hydrogen's potential to support the global transition to clean energy and the decarbonization of heavy industry sectors such as steel production. They also highlight policies and financing mechanisms that could help. Hi, Prof. Frank Yatso, Prof. Lily Hughes and Dr. Tom Longnan. thank you for joining Asia's Developing Future. To start things off, can you explain the changes you expect to see in global energy and industrial systems as economies move toward carbon net zero emissions? Prof. Yatso?
1: We will see uh, a very large shift away from fossil fuels and towards renewable energy. And this will happen in electricity supply, but it will also happen in transport and very importantly and excitingly in industry. And that is really currently the frontier uh, of where we see new processes and new opportunities. Tom, what would you add to that?
2: A lot of the modelling in this area really sort of does see that step-by-step hierarchy where one of the first sectors to decarbonize is the electricity sector. And then really you start to see a lot of action in transport with decarbonisation via different vehicle types, the adoption of electric drive vehicles and then other types of fuel cell vehicles, and then really leading to those difficult to abate sectors. And then, you know, industrial emissions are one of the last things to do. But of course, there's a lot of research technology developments that need to get there and drive
3: that change.
0: Professor Hughes?
3: The other thing to add to that, there's lots and lots of national variation. Depending on the underlying resources which are available in given countries, you know, how much solar they have, how much wind they have, um, how much land space there has, how easy it is to uh, build things depending on how mountainous the country is, for example, the range of options which are available to different countries looks quite different.
0: What well, does your research say about opportunities for hydrogen to support global decarbonization and competing production methods?
2: Some of the early opportunities for hydrogen are really in terms of replacing ammonia and methanol with a cleaner source and really shifting that towards renewable-based or green ammonia, green methanol. Hydrogen per se can be used and stored in many different variety of ways. However, storage and the shipping of liquefied hydrogen at the moment is still quite young. It's quite expensive. It's quite difficult to do.
0: What is Outlook for Hydrogen Development?
2: In the short term, you would be seeing more projects and shipping of green ammonia that will be replacing existing ammonia production from fossil fuels. Uh, methanol can be mixed in with a variety of fuels. A lot of the areas where you're seeing hydrogen being introduced early on tends to be small scale projects where you're fueling a return to base bus or truck or co-blending it with gas, I see that those projects are happening more often because you don't have the expensive storage options as part of the economics there. And so you'll see a lot more little projects with hydrogen trucks, buses happening, but also in terms of replacing key commodities like ammonium, methanol. I see. At the same time, the gas crisis has really changed the economics of any gas project with ammonia production is one of the key inputs to that is gas. So, the production of ammonia has completely changed because of higher gas prices. So, in the future, if the gas prices remain high, the international price for ammonia will stay high. And the green route for producing ammonia has become much more cost competitive simply because of those increased gas prices. And the discussions about producing hydrogen from gas have really become problematic because of those high gas prices. And that's really changed the economics of hydrogen near in the
3: future.
0: Steel making is one of the biggest carbon emitting industrial sectors. Can you tell us what a decarbonized future for global steel could look like and its implications for Asia's trade flows?
1: The entire steel supply chain accounts for 7% or more of global greenhouse gas emissions at this point in time. Once we have decarbonized the electricity system and the rest of the economy, that 7% for steel is going to be sit right in the way as an obstacle to full net zero in the world. Now, at the moment, steel is produced by reducing iron ore and smelting it with the help of coal. There are alternative processes that are now being developed into viable technologies that use hydrogen for the reduction process and then electric energy for the smelting. And that hydrogen, of course, can be produced in a clean way, in a green way, including on the basis of renewable energy. Okay. And in this way, you could process from iron ore to steel using only renewable energy or using other forms of clean energy. What that also means is a shift in the economic geography of heavy industry, in this case steel. In Australia, for example, we export large amounts of iron ore, we export large amounts of coal. In future, some of that supply chain could be onshore, producing green, clean, emissions-free iron in Australia and then shipping that to other countries predominantly in Asia for further processing into steel using clean electricity that will be produced locally in Asian steel producing countries. That's the vision and of course it requires enormous amounts of capital investment
0: Global energy transition generally will need enormous amount of investment. Some estimates are that annual investment in energy supply needs to triple from current levels of around 1 trillion US dollars per year. What role can policy play to unlock this investment?
1: The name of the game for governments in investment facilitation is twofold. First of all, policy instruments to drive investment into clean production technologies rather than old technologies that are high carbon. So carbon pricing, subsidies, regulation, the usual policy toolkit. And secondly, specifically on the financing, there's an important role for governments to de-risk investments. Can be government co-investments, can be governments guarantee uh, investments that are made by private investors. We know all of these instruments from other financing instruments. These need to be deployed at scale to support the clean energy revolution.
3: We did a study recently where we went out, it's called an expert elicitation study. Essentially, you go out to folk who are true experts in a given technology and ask them what they think about future cost paths and what kinds of policies might uh, enable the uh, reduction of costs for particular technology. One of the surprising things in that was that there was a strong focus in the results on de-risking, as Frank talks about, in this case, through the provision of credible targets and timetables. If you do provide that, it gives a lot of certainty for industry, a pipeline of projects moving forward. It makes it much, much easier to finance those kinds of production facilities. And so really there's this interesting
2: dynamic where lots of countries have gone ahead, made a big policy target for 2050 without the roadmap of what's going to happen by 2025, 2030, 2040. And there's a lot of uncertainty there. And a lot of countries really need to do that sort of modeling approach to hit that target when coal may exit the electricity generation sector. Because there'll be a lot of investors understanding that net zero is the future, but not knowing how it impacts their industry and how quickly the change will impact the economics and the viability of their business. And I think that's a key thing that's missing in a lot of countries that have set a net zero target. There isn't the policy framework on industrial level targets of how to get there.
0: What does the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act and its approach to national green industry policy mean for countries and industries in Asia?
1: The U.S. Inflation Reduction Act is, of course, a massive subsidy program for green energy made in America. What it does is uh, it really accelerates investment in the United States, things like uh, renewable energy, hydrogen, electric cars, batteries, a very long list of things. But it also diverts that investment from other countries where it might otherwise have taken place. And the big question that now emerges for other national governments is whether and to what extent they counteract by offering their own domestic subsidies to these kinds of industries in other countries. So this is a big question that many governments in Asia are currently grappling with.
0: How could this affect global energy transition?
3: When you look at the development of the solar industry, for example, you know, solar photovoltaics, the lowest cost renewable electricity generation source today, it was developed on the basis of deep global collaboration in the development of the solar supply chain between Germany, the United States and China as an enormous manufacturer of solar photovoltaic modules, for example, globalization has helped drive down the cost and scale up one of the key technology options that we have in order to help decarbonize the world. Now we're seeing this kind of model of subsidy provision, for example, for particular technologies being introduced in the United States. And so there's a question about how those two things are going to interact, combined with governments getting involved in order to try and shape those supply chains in order to create jobs, employment at home, capture uh, competitive advantage at home.
0: So what are the possible next steps?
3: Governments are going to have to build their capabilities, making selections about which technologies to support. You can't support all of them and you're not going to win in all of them either. And so I think there's important questions for government and there are important questions for research actually as well to help governments make the right kinds of choices about how to engage in this new world in which we're starting to see globalisation remains in place, but supply chains are beginning to be reorganised as a result of these kinds of policies which are being introduced.
0: This has been Asia's Developing Future, brought to you by the Asian Development Bank Institute. For more information about us, visit adbi.org.